At this time, the children are dismissed for children's church. So if, if you are in that um, age group, all the way up through, I think, grade four, you are allowed to leave. The rest of us turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're going to be beginning actually in verse 17, and we're going to go through first, uh, John chapter 16, verse 4a. Now, I say 4a, and, and oftentimes we don't say things like 4a or b, but at the same time, remember that any of the verse numbers that you have in your Bible are man-made, and they're put in there just so that it helps us as find a reference for where we're preaching from. So, um, we, if this is your first time here at Grace, um, I would like to say this is a really easy sermon, but it's not. You should have come last week. Last week, we talked about friendship. Last week, we talked about what does it mean that through Jesus, we become the friend of God? What does it mean that we become not only the friend of God, but the friend of Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit is also our friend? We talked about that last week, and so we're talking about relationships And again, in the midst of this relationship that we have with Jesus being our friend, the love of God, the spirit uh, empowering of us, we are meant to, you know, obey the commands of God. And in the midst of obeying the commands of God as the friends of God, it is meant to bring us great joy. As a matter of fact, John chapter 15 actually says, you know, I've spoken these things to you in verse 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. But in the midst of this, this friendship with God, this um, just filling up with joy within our hearts, what it's meant to lead us to are to good works, to, to works that you know, glorify God and bring honor to his name. And in the midst of that, it's all working itself together to bring us great joy, a joy that, is, that outjoys the world, a joy that comes even in the midst of trial and tribulation. There's this just effusive joy that this almost this spring of living water that, that wells up, that goes forth. That's what we talked about last week. And so this idea of joy and friendship And then the command of of Jesus is this, and it's these things, in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Now he says that. He says that to them to bolster their confidence and to, to let them to know that within the people of God, we desperately need to love one another. We don't need to compete with one another. We don't need to push down or be prideful, but rather as the people of God, like I hope that when you walk into the doors of church, that you are loved by others. And I hope in turn that you love others well. Because when you look around this morning, you see your brothers and sisters, and not only are they in need of your love, but you are also in need of theirs. And let me tell you why. He tells you why, because in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, he just changes and and just pivots 180 degrees, talking about from love and joy to something very, very hard. So let's read the Word of God, beginning in verse 17 that I've just prefaced all the way through 16, verse 4a. These things I command you so that you will love one another If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world and the world would love you as its own, 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Wow. So we go from friendship, so I don't know, but if you're counting, you know, hate happens like maybe eight times in the midst of John chapter 15 and 16. There's three things I want you to think about today. Uh, before I do that, uh, j- just so you know, um, three C's, and I want you to get these three C's. So if you're taking notes, here's what they are, okay? The first is this. There is a change um, that, that occurs. And then not only is there a change that occurs, there's a conflict that ensues from that change. And then finally, there's a challenge that comes, okay? A change, then a conflict that ensues, and then also a challenge. Just out of curiosity, how many of you take notes? Just, I just want to know. Yeah, I knew it was you, you know, or better yet, I knew it wasn't you who aren't. All right, here's why I take notes, all right? The reason we take notes, and this is totally aside, you know, the reason we take notes in the midst of a sermon is so that it keeps us focused. How many of you have ever been distracted in the midst of a sermon? Yeah, if you didn't raise your hand, welcome to church. (laughs) Maybe this is your first time, you know, maybe, or you're not paying attention already, okay? It's one of those two things, right? Like taking notes actually keeps you engaged in what's going on. There's something about writing with your hand that emblazons the truth on your heart, but it also keeps you, you know, just locked in, okay? Locked in. And so it's helpful. So anyway, there you go. Three C's today. Like, see if you can come up and then tell me what they are afterwards, all right? First of all, we see this change that comes when we believe in Jesus. When, when, when we see this, the, these things I command you so that you will love one another, there's this idea that we are connected to Christ. As a matter of fact, you, you see this in John chapter 15, and this is the culmination here. It says, abiding in me. It says in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. There's something about being connected to Jesus that causes us to be changed, But what happens when you come to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And after spending time with Jesus, your viewpoints begin to change. You see, Christianity is not a lifestyle change, okay? But a radical transformation. 
It's not a spiritual Marie Kondo episode of tidying up, okay? But rather, it is an internal change where your heart is changed. It's not about external change, it's about an internal change that leads to external change. And when I say radical, you know, I don't mean, I mean from the inside out, something is very different in you. Again, when we speak about this in Ezekiel chapter 36, where this prophet says at some point that the sons of Israel, their, their hearts of stone will be taken and replaced with a heart of flesh. There's this change that occurs. We see this in verse 19 of this passage in John chapter 15, where it says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. You are no longer of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. He also says, um, on account of me. In verse 21, it says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name. There is this, this, this change that happens within us, and, and what I describe it as, as a loyalty change. A loyalty change. And here's what I mean by this. When you trust and believe in Jesus, he becomes your prophet, priest, but most importantly, your king. And all of your loyalties change. They go from being about sin and self-interest to the interests of the new king. There's a loyalty change. Here's what I mean by that. It means that you, can, you cannot be owned by the world any longer. You are not theirs. They don't own you. As a matter of fact, no job owns you. Money doesn't own you. No sports team owns your loyalty. No political group owns your loyalty. Things don't own me. My physical wellness does not own me. The loss and grief that I have does not own me. My illness does not define me or own me. My family does not have a hold on me. No person owns me when I trust and believe in Jesus. Because when you look at John chapter 15, verse 5, it says, if you are connected to Christ, you know, if, if a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying, I am the only vine that the branches can be a part of where they will bear fruit. If you add anything else, it is a corrupt piece of, of fo- foliage or branch. And when we think about this idea is that my new allegiance, I have a new allegiance. That new allegiance is to God through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when I say the world, meaning that the world will hate you, what I'm saying is the world defined there means it's a society that is organized excluding God. We have to be careful about our allegiance. Well, here's what I mean by that. When you come to faith in Jesus, the beauty of God's law it becomes something that you want to aspire to. It becomes something that directs your steps. In, in theology, we call that the third use of the law, meaning that, that we as Christians are meant to use the law so that we might delight in the Father, that we might follow in the footsteps of our elder brother Jesus and be guided in all truth and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the midst of this, I think about you know, Psalm 119, where it says, you know, blessed are those whose way is blameless, 
who walk in the law of the Lord. And that's what it means, that our loyalty is to what God loves. Our loyalty and our allegiance is to who he is. But think about this. I want you to think about this. Um, um, You care about the things the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit care about, okay? You care about those things, such as you care about the holiness of God. You also care about the holiness of the believer and the ways in which you walk. Not because you're trying to earn your salvation, but because you want to commune with your Father. You also care about these things. You care about grace and mercy and redemption in eternity. You care about lost people. You care about the church, the body of Christ. It becomes dear to you. It's the place, again, where you, hopefully you walk in and you feel the love of Christ in the midst of the family of God that you're surrounded with. And it's a wonderful thing. But you also care about these things. You care about sexual morality. You care about the unborn. You care about the homeless. You care about the poor. You care about justice. You care about the widow. You care about the orphan. You care about raising up the next generation in faith. You care about all of that, not just pieces. Now you grow, all of us have different you know, thoughts about different ways that we're called and, and many of us have different interests, but as you become more like Christ, you love the things that Christ loved and he loved all of that. You see, our allegiance is changed. Again, nothing owns you. You think about this, um, think about integrity. You think about being wholeness and not allowing your allegiance to sway. Um, in, um, there's a, a man named C. Everett Koop who used to be the Surgeon General. And he was a Surgeon General several you know, decades ago. And in the midst of being Surgeon General, he was, um, he was applauded um, by, by the right because he, he um, stood up for the unborn. And so the, the, those who did not uh, like the unborn or you know, were, were for abortion did not want him to become the Surgeon General, and so they railed against him. But he said, no, I'm, 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 I'm for the unborn. I love children. And so people were like, he's not fit to be the Surgeon General. But in the midst of his... Um, time as Surgeon General, one of the issues that occurred in his time was the AIDS epidemic. And AIDS was being sort of pushed down and sort of not talked about. And, and what was happening was C. Everett Koop said, no, no, we have to talk about this and we need to bring this to, the ba- bring this to bear and we need to deal with this. And so what happened was when he began to talk about the AIDS epidemic, the people on the right said, he's not fit to be the Surgeon General because we don't want to talk about that. And the left said, oh, we actually think he's capable of being the Surgeon General now because he has now brought up this issue of AIDS. You see, C. Everett Koop said this, my loyalty is not to left or to right, but it is to what is right. Now, he was also known to be one who was loyal to Jesus. You see, your loyalty cannot be purchased by the world. Nothing owns you, but rather you love Jesus more than any other. Now, because because your loyalty cannot be bought, because you cannot be manipulated, there will be a great conflict. There will be a tremendous conflict. As a matter of fact, there will be a conflict with the world. 
In verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Look at verse um, 19, it says hates. Look at verse 20, it talks about persecution, persecution. If you look down in verse 23, it talks about hating you. Verse 24, talking about hating you. I mean, this is what's going on. There's a great conflict that occurs. And so why does the world hate you? Let me give you a few reasons. The world hates you because it hates any lack of conformity to it. If it cannot own you, manipulate you, and ultimately get you to fall in line and do what it says, it will hate you. The world hates you because your allegiance has shifted from the world to God, from idols to Jesus, from reliance upon oneself to reliance upon the Holy Spirit to give you strength and hope. Let me give you an example. It's just a funny example, all right? Um, KU football is about to start. You know, everybody's excited about KU football. You know, everybody's excited about KU athletics. If you're here you're as a student, you're like, that's great, man. You're just gonna, hopefully it'll be a great season, right? Imagine, though, everybody who's a KU football fan deciding, you know what? We don't want to be a KU football fan. We want to be a University of Georgia football fan, Right? And everybody starts wearing red and black all over the campus because they want to actually support Georgia. Now, what do we call that in the sports world? We call that jumping on the bandwagon, right? Anybody here, you know, dis dislike, I almost said despise, dislike people who jump on the sporting bandwagon of whatever team? Like, for example, uh, when the Royals are doing well, when they win the World Series, the stadium is packed, I'm here to tell you, the stadium's not packed today. They're struggling, right? The true fans are the ones who are showing up in 105 degree heat, watching a team that's won 40 games in August, right? Those are true fans. They're a little nuts, they're a little crazy, but they're true fans. All the bandwagon people are the ones who show up when they're winning and they're about to go to the World Series, right? Now, in the same way, that we have a dislike or a disdain for them the same way the world has a disdain for us because they're like, hey, you jumped off the world's bandwagon and you jumped onto Jesus' bandwagon. And we don't like that because the world does not like when you change allegiances. The world hates that you have jumped off the worldly bandwagon and are now riding shotgun on the Lord's wagon. It will hate your change of allegiance. Now, at best, the world would look, will look upon you with some curiosity. At best. Be like, oh, that's kind of cute. They got religion. And then from that curiosity, oftentimes grows resentment. And then from resentment grows anger. You see, we, we see this in, in James chapter 4, where it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God because what the world values, what the world calls you to is against what Jesus calls you to. We see this um, also in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, where he says this, John is, is writing his epistle and he says, little children. And again, when John says little children, he's not talking about age, right? John is really, really old at this point when he's writing this. So basically, everybody in the, in the church is his little children because he's so old, exiled on the island of Patmos. So when he says little children, he's talking about all believers in Christ. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He's essentially saying if you're from the world, you will not exclaim or proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. But if you are from Christ, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what is residing in you, the Holy Spirit residing within you is stronger than what resides outside of you. And the world will be in conflict with you. Secondly, the world hates you because it hated Jesus. Think about this. Jesus actually says this. He goes, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. As if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. To belong to Jesus is to invite some of the hatred directed at Jesus. Now I want you to think about who Jesus is. And if we are walking in the ways of Jesus, we will also be hated by the world and persecuted. But think about who Jesus was. In, in, in Karna, when he came, you know, think about it. In the days of Jesus' ministry, he robbed no banks. He raped no one. He murdered no one. He slandered no one. He was known for his healing power, his words of truth, unflagging integrity, and for the rich, rich texture of his love. All of that is true about Jesus, and the world hated him. And if you walk in the ways of Jesus, if you love, but don't expect something in return, if your allegiance is to Jesus, if you walk with the Father in step with the Spirit, the world will hate you because you're different. It hated Jesus first, it will also hate you. Now think about this, the world hates Jesus and it will hate you because Jesus exposed their sin. Now, I want you to look at this. Um, on verse 22, it says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, what Jesus is not saying there is that these people were sinless before he actually arrived. But he's saying that never in the world's history had one so pure, so brilliantly holy, been in their been with them, never has God been revealed to them like I revealed God to them, and yet they rejected me. He's saying that they are even sinning all the more. They have these spiritual benefits, but their sin is great. We think about this. Think, think about the, the Jews in the days of Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, um, Moses actually says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. He said, somebody like me, like Moses, is going to come to you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it, will require it of him. Meaning, require their life of them. So the whole time, the, the Jews should have been expecting a prophet to arise just like Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and yet when he showed up, because he was different, he revealed to them really what was going on in their own hearts. You see, when you come into contact with Jesus, he reveals your loyalties. It's just what happens. Like, I mean, there's, there's something about, there's, I mean, as much as we want to, we're attracted to Jesus, 
when we get around him, all of a sudden, he just begins to point out all of our different idols and loyalties that are not about him. Let me give you an example. In the, um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, there's a series of individuals that come to Jesus. And many of these people who come to Jesus, you would think that we would just welcome them into the church. Come on in. Like, come, come be a part of the family of God. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus actually says, he reveals their loyalties and their idols. He says this, I'm in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 and following. He says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, at that point, if somebody came in here and says, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, we would probably willingly accept them. And we would go, because we're Presbyterian, we would have a process, certainly, right? We would certainly like have them go through the new members class and then meet with the elders before they're baptized, before they take communion. I mean, certainly we would have a process, but ultimately we would say, yes, come on in. But Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Jesus begins to, when you, when you encounter Jesus, he reveals what you're really loyal to. And what Jesus demands and calls you to is an an unabashed, just wholehearted allegiance to him. And the reason he does that is because he's the best. There's no one greater. Now, because of that, the world will hate us. D.A. Carson says this, he says, so clear, so pure, so brilliant is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ that the world is robbed of all excuse when it confronts him. Here's one for you. Here's another reason why the world hates you in the midst of the conflict. The world hates you because you smell bad. The world hates you because you smell bad. And what I mean by that is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And here it is, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, the spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, that's this, this pleasing aroma that he talks about. The fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Meaning that when you come to somebody and you witness about Jesus and they come to faith in Jesus and you, you bring them to, to faith, you, know, you, you, you draw them to, to Christ and it's, you, you're this fragrance, this beautiful aroma. And they go, wow, this is so sweet. But to those who do not believe, those whose allegiance is still with the world, notice what it says. Um, I lost my place here for a second. Sorry. Um, it says, but to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. You see, what happens is when we bring the fragrance of Christ to the world, we remind the world of their finiteness. When we image Jesus, we not only reveal to them the lostness of their way of living, but we tell them that death is the final answer because of their wayward, rebellious living. 
That's part of the witness that we have. But we also, we tell them that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus the Son, and the world hates the idea that they might lose their own ability to save themselves. To lose autonomy and to have to find truth outside of themselves is something that the Western world resists and will fight against. We see that. Because when you go to somebody and you say, you can't save yourself, but you need Jesus, they bristle and they push back on that. And they don't believe you. Because what it means is that you have to humble yourself. And the only way that you can be saved, and we say this time and time again, the only way that you can be saved is through the Son, through Jesus. And in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, there is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. One name, one person, one way. And when the world hears that, unless Jesus has exposed their idolatry and they recognize that only he can save and they fall on their, their knees and proclaim that he is their Lord and Savior, they will say, you smell like the stench of death. How about this one? The last one I think I have for the why the world hates you and will hate us is this. The world hates you for no good reason. <laughs> Notice what it says. Um, we, we, we read about this, you know, when, when Jesus is actually saying, like, there was no reason they hated me. In verse 25, they hated me without a cause. We think about this from Psalms chapter 69, verse 4, where it says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lives, with lies. You see, if you love with Jesus' love, if you serve with the zeal that Jesus had, if you welcome the prostitutes, the lepers, the sexually immoral, the IRS agents, the atheists, the agnostics to meet Jesus so that Jesus can transform them from the inside out, the world will not love you. It will hate you. I mean, the world really should love believers because in the midst of this, like, we care for people. You know, think about, you know, orphanages and, and orphans and, and widows. Who took care of them in the ancient world? It was the church. It was the people of God. You know, people ate and were fed and were nourished and housed and cared for because the church rallied around them and yet the world hates the body of Christ. Now Jesus said these things. In verse, notice why he says these things. He says all of this is true but look at John chapter 16 verse one. He says I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's like, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following me is high. Now, the reward is worth it. The, the purpose of your life, the joy that you will have is worth it, but it's going to be a difficult journey. And then he gives us a challenge. If he, he says, we're changed by Christ. If we're conflicted with the world because of Jesus and the change that we have, there's also this great challenge that we have. And we see this in verse uh, 26 because there is this, this promise that happens as well. But when the helper comes, you know, the helper is the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. By the way, that, 
that verse right there is at the center of in 1054, why the Eastern Church split from the Roman Catholic Church. I don't have time to deal with that today. It's the, the great Philike yeah, heresy, uh, but this is just a, you know, go to church history. Caleb Stegel will teach you all of that next week or in like a few weeks. It's, uh, it'll be a good class. But that verse actually split the church. But what it says here is, but when the helper comes, the paraclete, the counselor, the, the helper, when he comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and here's the challenge, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness about me. That when all of this happens and the hatred of the world, abiding in Christ, when all of that happens, the helper will come, the spirit of God will come and dwell within you so that you can be a witness for me and all that I have said to you, all I have done. Now, that word witness right there actually comes from this Greek word, which is um, martyrese, martyr. And it actually has this idea of, we get the um, English word martyrdom right here. So what Jesus is saying is, essentially, in the midst of the Spirit of God coming in the hatred of the world, you, have to, you are called to be a martyr or a witness for all that I am doing. It's a high calling. But it's so good to know that the Holy Spirit will help us and guide us as we witness. Think about this. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Let me again quote D.A. Carson, who says, he purifies the believers. He grants them holy boldness. He teaches them meekness, calls to their mind truth that is appropriate. He incites to prayer, opens our eyes to need, and increases our desire to do the will of God. At the same time, he works in the hearts and minds of those who hear the witness, bringing them conviction of sin, opening their eyes, planting the word, and softening hearts. Christians who begin to glimpse the privilege of witness, notice what he says, the privilege of witness, who truly expect to serve as witnesses in this hating world, recognize that they must lean on the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God will be working in you but it'll also be working on the hearts and minds of those that you are witnessing to. Isn't that comforting to know that it's not up to you to convince everybody to follow Jesus? I can't imagine the burden you would feel if it was all up to you and how eloquent you were in your gospel proclamation. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be well-educated and thoughtful and winsome and have a really good gospel presentation, but here's what it does mean. It's the Spirit of God working to renew and change hearts. But we are called. Now, he actually says in, in John chapter 16, but because our loyalties have shifted, and because we now have the Spirit of God guiding our steps, we will become witnesses and martyrs for Jesus. And what it says here is, is really, really interesting and scary at the same time. In verse 2, it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Here's an interesting thought about Jesus. Um, oftentimes, when, when men in the synagogues, when they would do worship in the synagogues, a man would stand up and he would read a portion of scripture and he would expound upon it. 
And then a group of men would actually get together at the synagogue and they would determine whether or not what he said was actually true. And if they thought that what he said was true, they would utter the words, Amen, Amen, which is truly, truly. When Jesus shows up at the synagogue, he begins saying, truly, truly. And then he begins to tell them what is true. You see, Jesus took the synagogue worship and turned it upside down. And he's basically saying, I'm self-authenticating. There is no higher power. I don't need any other man to tell me what I say is true. I'm saying truly, truly. And when we witness to the world, what we're saying is truly, truly, there is one way to heaven. Truly, truly, there is only one king that we follow. Truly, truly, we will all face death. And either we will die for our sins or another will pay the price. Truly, truly. And when we are spirit-empowered to do that, we become witnesses for Jesus. Let me just give you a, a couple. Um, I'm, I'm about finished up here. Think about these men from history. William Tyndale, who was translating the Bible into English, was fleeing persecutors until he was captured and burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into English. His dying cry revealed an eternal perspective. When he was burned at the stake, the last thing he uttered was, Lord, Open the king of England's eyes. Or we think about this man, William Borden. He, was, he prepared for missionary service to the Muslim world. He was born to wealth. He poured his money and his example into missions. After the best training at Yale University and Princeton Seminary, he arrived in Egypt to work with Samuel Zwemer. Almost immediately, he contracted a terminal case of cerebral meningitis. His dying testimony did not falter. He said this, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Because he said, my life's ambition is to be a witness for Christ because my allegiance is only to him. C.T. Studd, another missionary, C.T. Studd, who was a gifted athlete, cricket player, he trained at Eton and Cambridge, and he turned his back on wealth and served Christ for decades against unimaginable odds, first in China and then in Africa. And because his allegiance was to Jesus, because he did not care about worldly possessions or privilege, he wrote this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue within a yard of hell. I want to rescue those within a yard of hell. There was a, the last one I think about is, is this before we come to the table and what gives us allegiance is there were two missionaries in the 1800s. They were Moravian missionaries. And these two Moravian missionaries felt called and felt this heart's pull and this tug to go be missionaries to the Muslim world in the West Indies to all the slaves who were, who were Muslims in the West Indies. And the only way that they could actually go and be missionaries to these slaves in the West Indies was to sell themselves into slavery because they wanted to witness the love of Christ to those who had never heard. It's a privilege. There is a change that occurs that brings conflict, but there is a challenge in our lives, brothers and sisters, to be a witness to all that Jesus has done for us. Now this table is the sign and seal of this, this witness. 
For this bread represents his body broken for you. At the supper, he took this bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took this cup and, and he poured wine into it. This is juice that I'm pouring. And he says, this cup represents this new covenant. And this wine represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And what he's, what he's talking about there is this, is that there's this substitutionary atonement that occurs. What Jesus has done, what do we witness about, brothers and sisters? We witness all that Jesus has done on our behalf. That Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And we witness all that Jesus has done. And this table is meant to be the table of the Lord so that we can commune with him, so that our witness is bolstered, that our faith is increased, so that we would have courage to live lives of faithfulness to him. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord, and he invites all those who trust and believe, those who have befriended Jesus or who have been befriended by Christ, to those whose allegiance is his, if that is you, then you are welcome. But if it's not, if you're not sure who Jesus is, if your allegiance is still, you're struggling with that, then find an elder and he can talk to you about who Jesus is. Now, I also want to tell you this. Every day we struggle with our allegiance, right? Every day we struggle with this. But for those of us who trust and believe in Jesus, he says, let's renew the covenant every time we partake of this table. Let's renew our steadfast love for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Father, this will always remain juice and this will always remain bread, but Father, you pour forth yourself spiritually upon your people. Jesus, you show up in a spiritual way that nourishes our soul, that encourages our hearts, that increases our faith. And Father, I pray, Lord, that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we would come to the table because we are your friends that we are connected to you, that we are abiding in Christ. So Father, as we come, would you nourish us? As we sing, Father, we pray that we would lift our hearts and voices to you because we love you. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.